0: Our Father, you are holy. There is no one who can ultimately stand in your presence. And I think of Moses as he encountered you at the burning bush, how he just trembled with fear, Lord. You told him to take off his sandals because the ground he was standing on was holy ground. And Lord, we know that no one can stand confident in your presence. No one can stand at all, Lord, because we are all condemned because of our sins. But we thank you that we have Jesus that we can run to, Lord, a refuge, a redeemer. And Lord, now as we come to a a topic that is a bit of a challenging topic for us, a topic of hell, a topic of judgment, of condemnation, we, we pray that you will glorify yourself in this time that we have together and that you will open our eyes in fresh ways to how amazing it is that Christ came to redeem us. And we pray these things in his name, amen. Back in 2011, there was a very controversial book that was released by a pastor named Rob Bell. And the book is called Love Wins. And the premise of Love Wins is that because God is so incredibly loving, there simply cannot be a hell. Or if there is a hell, then certainly God would not allow anyone to actually end up in hell. Now, as I said, this book was very controversial, especially among Christians who held to a relatively uh, standard, typical, traditional interpretation of Scripture on these topics. And the controversy, the firestorm that erupted over this book, actually eventually led Rob Bell to resign from being pastor of the church that he had planted many years before. But when we look at this topic and we look at this premise of love wins, I think there's a part of each one of us, that some, in some part of our heart at least, that wishes that the premise of love wins was true. I think there's a part of all of us that probably wish that hell wasn't a reality. In the end, everyone would go to heaven and live happily ever after. Peter Kreeft, who is a theologian at Boston College, he has said, Of all the doctrines of Christianity, hell is the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to bear, and the first to be abandoned. I think that for any one of us, when we look at this topic of hell, it makes us uncomfortable because it's hard to think of human beings going to a place of suffering for eternity. It's hard to reconcile this belief of loving God with the recognition that also he created and sustained a place of eternal punishment. It's hard to reconcile these things in our minds. Yet when we look in the scripture, we see that, that hell is a reality. And so that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at this topic head-on, this question of how can a loving God Send people to hell. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 25. We're in a series right now that is called Big Butts, in which we're examining key objections and questions that people have to the Christian faith. And this week I was reflecting on just how this series presents all these uncomfortable, heavy topics. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to a lighter sermon series, something that, that we're not coming every week with, oh man, this is hard to deal with. its um, I made a comment to my wife this morning as I'm putting on my shoes I think I actually found last week's topic of homosexuality more enjoyable than this week's topic of hell. That's the type of series that we are in. I mean, these are hard topics, and, and they're hard for a reason, because they are objections that people have. I was saying, you know what, if, if these are all relatively easy topics to, to discuss and to answer, and if they were all kind of happy topics, they wouldn't be big butts, But they are objections and they are things that we have to wrestle with. And so today we come to the topic of hell. How can a loving God send people to hell? Is something that you've probably heard if you've ever talked with people about your faith in Jesus Christ. And when we come to this topic, we have to recognize that Scripture says a lot about hell. It's a very common topic. It occurs a few times in the Old Testament, but it occurs many times in the New Testament. Topics of hell and divine judgment occur in each of the four biographies of Jesus known as the Gospels. It occurs in Acts. It occurs in Paul's letters. It occurs in James's letter. It occurs in John's letters. In, in, in Peter's letters. It occurs in Jude. And most certainly, it certainly occurs in Revelation. Topics of hell and of judgment. Now, it's interesting to note that the person in Scripture who talks the most about hell is Jesus himself. The person who many people put up on the pedestal saying he is so incredibly loving, he's so incredibly forgiving, he is the one, um, I mean, sometimes people compare him with this Old Testament God. They create a dichotomy there saying, well, the God of the New Testament and Jesus is very loving and forgiving. The God of the Old Testament is very wrathful and harsh and angry. It's a false dichotomy there. Um, but we have to recognize Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else in Scripture, so we come to this topic, and we cannot easily dismiss it if we want to hold to the truthfulness and the authority of Scripture. And so today we come to a passage. First of all, in Matthew 25, and we'll j- jump back a couple chapters to Matthew 22. Matthew 25 occurs near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry very soon before he is going to be arrested and crucified. And in the context, the several chapters right around Matthew 25, Jesus is, give, is giving many different warnings about being prepared. For his return and being prepared for judgment. And that is the context that we are looking at today. We're going to just select a few verses out of Matthew chapter 25. Um, there is, it's part of a larger context. You can read it at a different time, but we're going to pull out a few verses that highlight this reality of judgment and hell. Matthew 25, I'm going to read, uh, first of all, verse 31 through 34. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now jump down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now jump down to the last uh, verse in this passage, verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what Jesus is talking about here is the eternal judgment, um, the final judgment when Christ Returns. He says when the Son of Man returns, this is the way of referring to himself here. He says when he returns, he will return in glory with the angels and sit on his glorious throne. Now this will be the second coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ occurred about 2,000 years ago. And then Christ came in a very humble, in a meek way. He was so humble and meek throughout his earthly ministry that many people failed to recognize him for who he really was. That he was God come to earth in human form. But when Jesus returns, when he comes the second time, sometime in the future, you will be very clear to everyone who he is because he will come in glory with angels. And that will be the time when the final judgment will occur. Everyone will be judged. It says that all the nations will be gathered before him. There is no one who is exempt from this judgment. And there will be a division that takes place between two groups. And Jesus is speaking here in metaphors using sheep and goats. He's talking about how a shepherd in the Middle East, it was the same then as it is now, that oftentimes you would have sheep and goats out there in a pasture together. But there would be certain times that a shepherd would need to separate the sheep. From the goats. And so he's using this metaphor of of shepherding imagery where you move sheep over on one side and he says the sheep will be on the right hand side of the shepherd. The right hand side, metaphorically speaking, is the side of power and of honor. And then the goats will be put over on the left side. They will be in two distinct groups and these two groups will each have their own eternal destination. We see in verse 24 the king will say to those on his right, the king here is referring to Jesus, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared before, or since before the creation of the world. So we see that God has been preparing since before the creation of the world for heaven, the time when his people will be fully in his presence to experience the fullness of his glory. It will be a time of great celebration and a time of great joy in the presence of God. But then there is the other destination, and that is the destination of hell. Verse 41, then then he will say to those on his left, Apart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I want to give a picture for us in a moment of what hell is like. Now, we've certainly probably seen paintings of it. I mean, they're oftentimes very graphic. I just want to point out a few different characteristics of hell, but before I do that, I want to read one more passage from Jesus back in Matthew 22. It's found in verses 11 through 13. Jesus oftentimes speaks in parables. About, um, about a variety of things, especially about heaven and hell. Because heaven and hell are topics that, are, that belong to another realm. They are things that, that we have not experienced, that we don't even have a knowledge fully of what that is going to be like. And because we haven't experienced it, and because it's outside the realm of, of anything that we can really imagine fully The Bible, including Jesus, oftentimes when they talk about these topics of heaven and hell, they talk in metaphor and in symbolism and in parables, giving us uh, images that we can understand and to create an analogy to help us understand things that are beyond our current experience. And that's what oftentimes happens with heaven and hell. That's why Jesus particularly, when he speaks of heaven and hell, he talks in metaphors and in parables and in imagery. So here in Matthew 22, he's using the image of a wedding banquet, a great celebration to which many people are invited. And we come to verses 11 through 13, and it says, when the king who threw this wedding banquet, when he came to see the guests... He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here we have this imagery. Uh, A great wedding and a guy comes in and I guess he doesn't have the right clothes on. We need to keep in mind this is imagery. This is a metaphor for what's going to take place. There isn't going to be a fashion policeman standing at the gate of heaven saying, Hey, what are you wearing there? The outfit doesn't go with you. You need to go downstairs. No, that's not what's happening here. It's a metaphor. It's a picture of a person who is not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, who is not prepared to be there in God's presence in heaven. But let me give us a picture, biblically, or more of a description of some of the key characteristics of hell. I'm going to start with an overarching definition of what, how hell could be described. Hell essentially is a place of eternal conscious punishment. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. And this, this is where it gets a bit uncomfortable for our sensibilities when we think about hell and these realities. Now, one of the things we see from these two passages we've looked at is that hell is exclusion. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, depart from me to those on his left. In Matthew 22, it, said, um, it says, throw him outside. So it's, hell is a place of exclusion, a place of being excluded from God's presence and from the presence of God's people. Oftentimes people say, you know what, one of the core attributes of hell is simply that God is not there. And so his blessings that we enjoy, that every person enjoys, regardless of whether they acknowledge him, every person enjoys God's blessings and his grace here on this earth. Many, many blessings. But in hell, those blessings will no longer be there. Some of you may have heard of the musician named Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson, his actual name is uh, Brian Warner. He grew up in a Christian home, but he rejected that that Christian faith of his family, and he turned to a very dark side. He now leads a heavy metal band named Marilyn Manson uh, that, that sings about violence, about dark things, even about satanic things. And there was an interview with Brian Warner a few years ago where he talks about how he's very confident that when he dies, he's going to hell. Now, for most people, this wouldn't be something you'd be excited about, being confident about, but he's actually kind of happy about that. Listen to what he says. He, he, he lets out a little bit of a chuckle. Then he says, I'm going to say it would probably be more comfortable a place for me because everyone I know would be there, and I wouldn't really be allowed to do anything in heaven that would be any fun anyway. So this is his perspective that, you know what? Heaven doesn't look like very much fun. I wouldn't really like the people there much Anyway. And so I'd rather just go to hell. But this is not only a tragic and an erroneous uh, perspective, it's one that, that is not true at all. Because hell, since God is not there, and since God's blessings that he provides for us here on this earth is not there, the things that we enjoy on this earth, because it's a place of exclusion, will not be there in hell. So if you enjoy beautiful sunrises or sunsets here on this earth, those will not be there. If you enjoy the companionship of friends or of your spouse in, in, in this earth, the warmth and care of those relationships will not be there in hell because the love and, and the, the joy that we can enjoy here on this earth will not be there. If you enjoy intellectual challenges, if you enjoy uh, meaningful work, if you enjoy tasty food here on this earth, you can be assured those will be in heaven They will not be in hell. And so so hell is certainly a place that, that no one would want to be when they see it for what it is, because it's an exclusion from God and from everything good that he provides for us. Hell is also biblically pictured as a place involving anguish. Here in Matthew 25, it talks about this eternal fire. Fire is the most common imagery in Scripture of hell. And, and there are a variety of interpretations over what this fire is. Is there literally going to be fire there? Or what is it more of a metaphor? But the bottom line, this fire is talking about the agony, the pain, the suffering of hell. And back in Matthew chapter 22, it speaks of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. You think about when people weep, they are sad. When people gnash their teeth, they are frustrated. And so this imagery of weeping and gnashing of teeth speaks of a regret that people have in hell, of recognizing that they were pursuing a wrong direction, but there's no way out of it now. So it's a place of anguish and a place of regret. And finally, we see that hell is eternal. Verse 46 of Matthew chapter 25, Then they will go away to eternal punishment. That this is everlasting. It doesn't end. It goes on forever. Just as heaven goes on forever, so does hell. And so so we see here, hell is, (laughs) I mean, it's a place that no one wants to go, but people will go there. There will be this judgment one day. So how do we respond? We see that biblically, again, Scripture is unashamed to talk about hell. Jesus was unashamed of it. But how do we respond to others or even to our own questions When you're asked, okay, how can a loving God send people to hell? How does this work? Why is that? Is that really the case at all? Well, again, this is not an easy thing to respond to. There aren't easy answers. That's why it's a big but. But let me give you a few things biblically that can help us know how to understand this and things that we can point to in our conversations. One of the things we have to recognize is that God is holy and just, but we are incredibly sinful, God is holy and just, but we are incredibly sinful. One of the realities here in America is that people like to pick and choose what attributes of God they are going to elevate. Here in America, people love the attributes of of love, of mercy, and of grace, but they don't really care that much for the attributes of holiness, of justice, of wrath. You may be familiar with stores out there called Build-A-Bear. At Build-A-Bear stores, you can go in there and you can pick out all these different things. You can build your own teddy bear where you pick out, okay, what's it going to look like? What size is it going to be? What are you going to put inside of it? You get to put all the stuffing in there. You can put special treasures inside and sew it shut. And I mean, it's kind of a cool little thing. Well, here in America, people like Build-A-God. But that doesn't work. You have to take God for who he is, how he reveals himself in all of his attributes rather than picking and choosing, okay, I'm going to like this one. Nah, I don't care for that one that much. We have to come to God on his terms, not on our terms. And God reveals himself not only as a God of love and mercy and grace and compassion, but also as a God of justice, and of holiness, and even of wrath towards sin as an expression of his justice And holiness. I want to turn our attention for a minute back to Isaiah chapter 6, which is one of those classic descriptions in Scripture about a person's response when they come face-to-face with God's holiness. It's absolutely terrifying for anyone who sees God in his holiness. And this is from the prophet Isaiah, uh, who himself is a man who, he's sinful, but at the same time you think, okay, if anyone is seeking God, Isaiah would be one of those people. If anyone is pleasing God and can stand confident in God's presence, this would be Isaiah. But listen to Isaiah's response. He's ushered into the throne room of God where there are angels around him, and it says the angels were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, said Isaiah. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah sees God in the fullness of his holiness, or at least least a significant glimpse of his holiness. He says, woe to me, I am ruined. This is the common response of people when they get just even a taste of God's holiness. I am ruined. I am so incredibly sinful. I am lost. And this is the perspective that we need to have when we view our sin in light of God's holiness and his justice. I want you to imagine a football field. Just another metaphor here. Again, when we speak of these things, in order to help us understand that metaphors and symbolism can be helpful. I want you to imagine a football field. On one goal line, you have Jesus. On the other goal line, you have Adolf Hitler. And what this football field represents is a spectrum of holiness and righteousness. Jesus on one goal line, representing absolute 100% holiness and righteousness. Hitler on the other goal line, representing sin, evil, rebellion against God. Now, on this spectrum of this football field, where would you put yourself in terms of holiness? I think that probably a lot of us would think, well, I don't really want to be associated with Hiller. So, giving ourselves a minute for the doubt, I think most of us would probably want to put ourselves at least somewhere around the 50-yard line, wouldn't we? I mean, we don't want to be over there by Hitler. We know we're not up to Jesus' standard, so, you know, let's just kind of be medium, 50%. But if we really, really want to grasp the depth of our sin, biblically speaking, we have to recognize we are right over there right next to Hitler. Okay, now maybe on a relative scale, we could be a little bit better, so we could be on the one-yard line. But still, there is this vast expanse between us and the holiness and righteousness of God. And in reality, football field is not enough to measure that expanse. And in reality, you need uh, an expanse between us and Jesus that is infinitely long. Because it's not possible to measure the distance between his righteousness and our sinfulness. And so we come to this reality that we are utterly sinful. Now, you may be saying, come on, we're not that bad. I mean, we do, some, we do a lot of good things. And you're right, we are not as bad as we could be. But let me give you just a simplistic math calculation to help you understand the, the weight of our sin. I, I did a calculation that figured, okay, if you commit one sin per hour through your waking hours of an average 75-year-old lifetime, you would commit nearly 500,000 sins. 500,000 sins. Now imagine standing before the Holy God at the judgment, saying, God, I tried to live to please you. I, I, did, I did a lot of good things. I helped people out. I lived a pretty good life. Yeah, it wasn't perfect, but still pretty good. And then you have this pile of a half a million sins sitting next to you. It's going to be hard to reconcile those half a million sins with you saying, hey, I, I, I really tried to live a good life for you, God. And in reality, like I said, this is a very simplistic type of calculation if you can't even calculate the number of sins. It's simplistic because, and it's very conservative, because one sin per hour is probably uh, pretty tame when you consider that sin is not just things that we do or say that are wrong. It could also be motives. It can be thoughts. It can be things that we don't do that we should have done. And so in reality, I mean, if there is a way to calculate it, it could easily be in the tens of millions or more. It, it, I mean, again, it's just an abstract kind of simplistic calculation just to show, you know what? We have a sin problem. Paul said, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so God is holy and just, and we are incredibly sinful. And we have to come to, gri- come to, come to grips with this reality if we are to understand the reality of judgment and the reality of hell. Most people uh, overestimate their own righteousness and innocence. Most people underestimate the holiness and justice of God. Now, one of the things we also have to recognize is that really people choose hell by rejecting God. You may think, okay, who would really choose hell? Well, in a sense, people do this every single day. They do this by denying God, by ignoring God, or even outright rebellion against God. When they do that, they are saying, you know what, God, I don't want you to be a part of my life. C.S. Lewis once said there are really only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So either we can say to God, you know what, God, I'm going to do your will, or God at the end will say to us, you know what, your will can be done. If you don't want to have a part of me, if you don't want me to be a part of your life, you can go on that way. Because really, hell is simply an eternal extension of, of our self-centered lives here on this earth. It's just our self-centeredness and our sinfulness extended on into eternity. And so really, it's not so much a matter of God sending people to hell. It's more a matter of us choosing hell because of our, our rebellion against God and our, 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 uh, our, our refusal to repent. Now, one of the other things we have to recognize is that God is more than fair. Many people would say, well, hell is not fair. No one deserves to go to hell. But we already uh, established a bit of a case for the fact that we are sinful and God's holy and just, and, and sin needs to be punished. But we recognize God is certainly more than fair. If you want to talk about what's really not fair, look at what Jesus did on our behalf. What was ultimately not fair at all was for Jesus to have to come and die on the cross. He was innocent, he was sinless, and he died in our place. That is not fair. I want to give you another analogy of this. I do, from, from time to time, some ministry in the Ozaki County Jail. lead some Bible studies and lead church services there sometimes. Imagine if I came home one day after leading a church service there and said to Shelley, my wife, Hey, Shelley, I kind of came up with this deal with one of the guys who's there. I, yeah, I kind of like him a little bit. I mean, he's a nice guy. Uh, he has 20 years left to serve. We're just going to swap places. I, I want him to go free. I mean, he has a family. I'm just, I just want him to go free. I'm going to go in there. I'm, I, yeah, I haven't committed that crime, but I'm just going to go take his place. And you know what? I just want to help him get back on his feet a little bit. I'm just going to throw in the house and the car too. He can have those. He have our house and car. How would Shelly respond? I mean, how would you all respond to me if I said that? Hey, I'll see you guys in 20 years. I'm going to go take a guy's place. You say, no, that's not fair. He, he should have to pay the penalty that he deserves for his crime. You should not be doing that for him. You are innocent, Brandon. You should not have to go to prison for that. But you know what? That's exactly what Jesus did. I mean, but on a much greater degree. He came and said, you know what? I am going to take your place so that you can go free. It is not fair. It is grace. I think of Romans chapter 6, verse 23 for so the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we earned, our wages, because of sin, is death. Eternal separation from God. But, and this is a, this is a, a great big but, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. It's something we didn't earn, we didn't deserve, it's not so much fair, it's grace, unmerited, undeserved gift. We see in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were yet sinners, before we cleaned up our act, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, gives a great picture of what takes place here on the cross. So It's talking about Christ and says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so on the cross, there was a great exchange that took place. And the exchange is this, that we took on Christ's righteousness. And Christ took on our sin. That's why Christ died, to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. So that we would not have to taste the eternal consequences in hell of our sin. And we, I mean, so for Christ, I mean, he receives that. He received God's wrath on the cross. We receive Christ's righteousness. You remember how Christ is over here on the goal line, 100% righteous? Now when God looks at us, if our faith is in Christ, if we receive the gift of salvation by trusting in Christ, not our own good works, then when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. So then in a sense, through Christ and through faith in him, then we are over on that goal line with him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's not because of what we've done. It's because of what God has done through Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. It's not fair. It's grace. So God is certainly more than fair. Yes, there will be people who go to hell because they make the decision to reject God, whether God revealed himself through nature, whether he revealed himself through someone sharing the gospel, through scripture, through their conscience, however God revealed himself, if people reject him, and refuse to repent and turn to him, they will go to hell. In John chapter 3, it talks about how God's wrath will remain upon them if they are not in Christ. But God offers something that's more than fair. He offers grace, and that's available to anyone and everyone who will turn their lives over to Christ. Now, when we look at this reality of hell and judgment, there actually is a sense of, of patience and peace that we, can, uh, that we can get from the reality of God's judgment because we all face times in our lives where people wrong us and where we are hurt, and we may want to take vengeance in your own hands and pay them back for the wrong they did to us. In those times, we can look ahead to the fact that, you know what, God is just. And even if we don't do anything to take vengeance into our own hands here, we can trust that God will not forget about that thing, and he will handle it in a way that it needs to be handled. Over in Romans chapter 12, it's a great passage that has given me great comfort in times when I feel very wronged uh, by people, which happens to all of us from time to time. Romans 12, picking up in verse 17, Paul says, "...do not repay anyone evil for evil." Be careful what to do, is, what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Skipping ahead to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So for me, this gives me great comfort knowing, you know what, even in those times where I'm wronged, When someone hurts me and maybe they recognize it, maybe they don't, I can say, God, I'm going to trust this over to you. I want to seek reconciliation where I can, but where reconciliation does not or cannot happen, I'm able to say, God, you can take care of this. And that can give me a peace and a patience that I I couldn't have if it was only up to me to handle um, justice and making sure justice is done. But God will handle that. And so finally, our final response is that we need to embrace and share the gospel. We need to embrace it for ourselves. It is utterly foolish for us to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and to ignore it. That's utterly foolish. So we need to embrace the gospel to prepare for that time when we are standing before God. But also we need to share the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is the only hope on this earth for people avoiding hell and spending eternity with God. I think now about how this, there is this scare with Ebola I mean, in Africa, but now it's a scare here in America. Imagine if you had this amazing cure. that All, all someone has to do is just, say, drink this little potion or, or take this little medicine, and they could instantly be cured of Ebola. It would no longer be a scare anymore, would it? It would be evil and wicked of you to hold that cure in for yourself and say, no, I'm just going to keep it here. I'm not going to share it with anyone else. In the same way, we have a cure, a remedy for sin and for judgment and for hell. And we are called as Christ's ambassadors to share that remedy with the world. W- warn people, just as Jesus did warn people there is a judgment coming. But here is how you, can, how you can be free from condemnation and judgment. And it's an offer to a new life. And this is the beauty of what we have to offer. We can point to Christ and say, look at what Christ did. He will take your sin. He will take your punishment. You can go free and enjoy a new life. Because Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. That is beautiful, isn't it? Now we come back to the idea of love wins. And I think the idea of love wins. God is love. But I want to expand that a little bit and say, you know what? It's better to say not just love wins. It's better to say God wins because that's the reality of Jesus' victory on the cross. It's the reality of heaven and hell that ultimately God wins over any sin, any evil in this entire universe. We look around the world now, and we don't always see God winning. We see evil and suffering triumphing many times. But in the end, God will win. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter... 15, talking about Jesus' resurrection, it says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, because he does give us the victory when we are clinging to Christ. And we celebrate the victory here at Freedoms in many different ways. One of the ways is through communion. And so in just a moment, uh, we're going to be celebrating communion together to remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We're going to have a song before that. and I encourage you during the course of the song, just go to God in gratitude. Just thank him for what he has done. If there is any sin in your life that is unconfessed, confess it to God. Receive his forgiveness and his grace. So I'm going to pray for us and let us prepare our hearts to receive this communion the celebration of the sacrifice Christ has made for us. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth. You came humbly and meekly, and we thank you that you came not just to live and teach, but to die on our behalf. That is grace, Lord. We don't deserve it, and we want to say thank you. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to, to receive that gift for ourselves and to share it with others, because we don't want to see people going to hell. It's a tough topic, Lord, to, to fathom, but we see the reality of hell. We want to make sure as many people as possible go to heaven and are with us and with you when they pass away. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.